Politics as Usual is a global partners governance podcast brought to you by gpgovernance.net. Hello and welcome to Politics as Usual episode 12, a full 12 episodes. This week, Stephen Twigg, who until the last election was the MP for Liverpool, West Derby and chair of the House of Commons International Development Committee. For those of us old enough to remember the Labour landslide victory in 1997, when Labour actually won things, Stephen was the face of that election. Against all the expectations, winning the safe Tory seat of Enfield North and beating the then Defence Secretary Michael Portillo, who was widely being touted then as a future leader of the Conservative Party. As he explains uh, in our discussion, he had only the year before been appointed as as head of or general secretary of the Labour-affiliated think tank, the Fabian Society, and he only got the job on the strict understanding that although he was going to run as a candidate, there was absolutely no way he was going to win. And as you'll hear, it was only four or five days before the election itself that he had any inkling he might actually beat Portillo. Um, I've known Stephen since the mid-1990s uh, at that time because of our shared interest in democratic and constitutional reform in the UK. And we ended up in lots of meetings together. But we also ended up working together in government uh, when I was a special advisor and he was Robin Cook's deputy as leader of the House of Commons from 2001. So I've known him a long time and I'd assumed that, that Stephen had always known he was going to go into politics. And looking back at his career path, he studied politics, philosophy and economics at Oxford. He was president of the National Union of Students and then a member of parliament and minister. There seemed to be an inevitability to his ascent. Yet, as he reveals, his political ambitions evolved slowly, heavily influenced by his Communist Party parents, which I didn't know about, um, and how it was down to one teacher that he got into Oxford at all. And even when he was president of the NUS, it was not inevitable that he was going to seek election. I really enjoyed this discussion. Uh, Stephen talks with honesty and openness about how his early years and family life shaped his outlook, the experience of losing an election and the personal dimension to losing an election, which he did in 2005, and how one of the things he's proudest of is his work as chair of the International Development Committee, which we talk about towards the end of the interview. As you can probably already tell, it's a wide-ranging conversation, and I really hope you enjoy it as much as I do. So to start with, how does it, how does it feel <laughs> being out of politics after a, uh, a lifetime of politics? I mean, I know you were out between 2005 and 2010, but this was, it seemed like a clear decision, right, that's the end of a chapter of my, my political life. Yes, it's been weird the last couple of months and it is very different deciding to leave Parliament than it was back in 2005 when I was defeated. You know, this, this was my choice. Um, and in, a, in, in a practical sense, it's no different in that I'm now looking for, for, for work and what I'm going to do next. But this was, a, this was a decision that I made about wanting to do something different uh, with my life. And I ended up on election day going back to my old constituency to Enfield, uh, Southgate, to help my good friend there, Bambos, who, who was re-elected, um, despite the, the yeah. national result. Because you were that, that, that Bam, Bambos being the MP for Enfield, Southgate, which was the seat, obviously, that you won in 1997 and became the face of that 1997 election, defeating Michael Portillo. Um, but this, this must feel like a... This was clearly a, a decision, right, that's it. Mm. I'm sort of done with that, mm. that, that chapter. Um, and what, what brought that, what made you come to that decision? 
It was a very personal decision. I think you know, people understandably and inevitably think, what, what, what's, the, what's the political basis of, of a decision like that? In the end, it was, it was a personal decision that, you know, I'm now 53. Um, I think there is an opportunity to do some really interesting things that build upon the work that I've done as a Member of Parliament. I have found the international development area fascinating. I've learned a lot from it. And ideally, I want to look to do something that relates to to campaigning or advocacy or programmes, mm. um, uh, including an international dimension. Well, I'll come back to that in a bit, but I mean, just to wind back a bit, mm. um, did you always know that you were going to have a, a career in politics? Yeah. Where, where did all this start? So my mum and dad were in the Communist Party. Okay. I, grew, I, I grew up in, um, in Southgate, yeah. so the area of North London that I later represented. Um, in those days, in the, the, the late 60s and 70s, it was a staunchly conservative mm. place. You know, Labour voters were rare, let alone Communist Party uh, activists. But I got a lot of my interest in politics from my mum and dad. I remember my mum stood for Enfield Council as a Communist Party candidate when I was four years old. I've still got the leaflet. <laughs> I remember going on anti-racism demonstrations in Wood, Wood Green um, in the 70s when the National Front were marching through uh, Wood Green which, um, you know, with a big black and um, minority ethnic community. I remember those marches really very clearly. Uh, and then I remember the election of Margaret Thatcher, by which point I was uh, 11, 12 years old. And, you know, my parents were in the Communist Party... I got to the age of 15, and that was the age at which you could join the Labour Party, and I thought, I want to be in the Labour Party. You know, I, I was on the left, I, I could see lots of things about the world that I thought were wrong and needed to change, but I saw Labour as the vehicle uh, for that change. I did not remotely think, as a 15-year-old, and I'll become a Member of Parliament. That just was not in my uh, brain at all, in my head at all. It was, it was a passion about kind of racism and apartheid and nuclear weapons and education cuts and you know all of the issues that that were around at that time it's i mean I, I, we talked about this before because of similar age but that sense in the early mid 80s you had to pick a side you know mm. the po- politics i mean there's a lot of concern now about politics being very polarized but at the time mm. certainly within the uk it felt you, know, you had to pick a side mm. that you were on but how did your parents feel about you joining the labor party as opposed to um, I mean, the Labour Party at that point actually was on the, on the, mm. on the far left under Foote's, mm. Foote's leadership. Yeah, Michael Foote was the leader. I was a big fan of Tony Benn at that time. I, mm. I remember saying that after Tony Benn died and people questioning, was I trying to create these fake left-wing credentials <laughs> from the early 80s? But I really was a big fan of Tony Benn at that time. Um, my mum and dad have both, have both died. Um, I think it would be fair to say my mum was much more left-wing than my dad. Uh, my dad was always a lot more pragmatic. And so my dad was fine with me joining the Labour Party, whereas my mum thought I was a terrible sellout for, for joining the Labour Party. Mm-hmm. And so your parents died subsequently. They, they, they were still alive at the time in the, in the mid-80s. Yeah, they were alive then. My mum my died quite young. My mum died in 92. Oh. Uh, my dad died much more recently uh, in uh, 2013. So my dad was um, one of my constituents when I was elected in, in Enfield, but uh, my mum didn't, didn't live to see that. But they continued to shape your political views and your approach to politics, I guess, as, as, as you joined the Labour Party. And yeah, I, mean, I would say I got the foundations of my values from home, yeah. and from my mum and dad, and from um, some of that political uh, activism. 
I then started to make my own choices as I got involved in the Labour Party. And I think you're absolutely right that it was a time where you, you had to take sides. You know, I, I was on the left, I joined Labour. We then had the miners' strike, and I was, you know, I was a sixth former when the miners' strike was on, but we used to collect food and money for the miners and their families in the local shopping centre. But in some ways, the miners' strike contributed to my own politics changing, and, mm. and I, you know, listened to some of the arguments that Neil Kinnock made about the strategy of the union, and a lot of what he was saying as leader of the Labour Party resonated with me. So, kind of by the time I left home and went to university, mm. um, I was already kind of moving away from my Benite um, origins. Because you're with, with hindsight. Your career looks like sort of the archetypal, you know, political progress. Going mm. to, I think you went to Oxford yeah. with PPE, yeah. Yeah. and then NUS, President of the National Union of Students, and so on. But that was none of that was expected. What, what did your parents do? Were they you sort of a part of that milieu? Were you expected to go to Oxford? Was that always an expectation, or? It absolutely wasn't always an expectation. I, my my uh, parents were from very different backgrounds. Mm. So my mum was East End working class. Right. Um, she was a bright. Um, person, um, so she passed the eleven plus. She went to Dame Alice Owen um, Grammar School when it was still in Islington. She was an only child in a in a working class family. Her dad was a fireman. Um, my grandmother worked sometimes, um, usually sort of shop work when she was working, but didn't always work. And when she was fifteen, um, it was leave school. There was no sense of. Um, her as a working class girl staying on in education beyond the compulsory uh, leaving age and about that time they were moved as part of kind of the post-war slum clearances and they moved out to to Welling Garden City Um, whereas my dad was from a much more middle class family um, born in Barnet grew up in Welling Garden City um, he did, he went to Oxford but he went to Oxford after doing national service and didn't right. didn't like it um, he was a grammar school boy, found it very public school and just survived for one term and left. Yeah. Uh, so he was studying modern languages at Oxford, um, didn't like it, felt a lot, having done national service, and kind of, I think he felt more kind of grown up and not wanting to be a student, didn't like the kind of public school atmosphere there. And he went off and became, he was an insurance broker, so he worked in the insurance industry yeah. alongside being a Communist Party um, activist. So at which point, because you went to a, a, the local comp, yep. as I understand it, so yeah. at which point did it become evident that you were bright and um, going to go and study, but particularly politics, yeah. philosophy and economics? So I was, I was very academic um, at school. Uh, I wanted to be a lawyer. Uh, so certainly, if, you know, if we were talking about this when I was fourteen, I wanted to be a barrister. That was absolutely clearly what I wanted to do. I was going to go and do a law degree, and um, I did A level economics. Mm. And um, Mr. Coward, Richard Coward, um, was my economics teacher, and he said to me, "You've got to go to Oxford and do PPE mm. and politics, philosophy, and economics." And I was like, "Okay." Um, but I said, I want, I want to be a lawyer, and he was, "Well, you can be a lawyer afterwards. You do a conversion, but um, you'll." you'll really enjoy doing politics, philosophy and economics. So, you know, my school didn't generally send people to Oxford or Cambridge. I applied. To be, If I'm honest, at that time, I didn't feel that the be-all and end-all of the next phase of my life is getting into Oxford. I had second and third choices that I'd have been happy with, but, but I, I got in. And, and it was, personally, an amazing experience getting the chance to go, um, to, go to, to Oxford and study there and... Um, it was, for me, I was coming out as gay. I never came out at school. Oxford, I arrived and I was out gay from day one and that was a very liberating was that, experience. I mean, was, that, was that a conscious decision at that point, right? This is, you know, 
I mean, obviously, going to university, you start to become an adult anyway, and you start mm. to freedom from your parents and away from home and different environment. But that was a conscious decision at that that point. It was. I mean, I was at a you know pretty liberal North London comprehensive school. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what would have happened if I'd come out at school. It probably mostly, probably mostly would have been okay. I was bullied at school. It wasn't. It wasn't homophobic bullying. Yeah. I was bullied at school, and I was just very nervous to come out when I was at school. I came out to. Uh, basically one friend uh, when I was in the sixth form um, and uh, I never never had that confidence and, and weirdly I, I know this is going to sound very strange I came out in the Labour Party mm. so I um, I actually joined what is now LGBT Labour but in those days was called the Labour Campaign for Gay Rights mm. before I'd come out because <laughs> it was like almost a private thing to do and I joined it and I got the in 1984 the local Labour Party to send a resolution on um, lesbian and gay rights uh-huh. to Labour Party conference when I wasn't actually out, got them to send me as the delegate, and I wasn't out. Was there, I mean, a, a, lot of, a lot of friends who are gay talk about an early period of being sort of torn. Mm. Um, and that must... Was that there? I mean, with, I, I was going to ask about... I wasn't going to talk about this particularly, but I'm interested now you mentioned it, about what, the extent to which your sexuality... Has shaped your political views mm. because we've known each other for a long time, mm. and I've never got the sense that it's up front and centre yeah. with you, whereas it is with other politicians. And I just wondered how it shaped those views, especially at that stage, if at all. I think it. I think it did. Um, I think it. You know, I, I had I had this set of values from my mum and dad um, that were about equality and justice and all the rest of it. I mean, bluntly, my mum was awful about me being gay, uh, whereas my dad was great. Um, I mean, I, on the I, whole, what sort of basis was this religious, moral? Or? Definitely not not religious at all. They were they were they were not religious. Mm. I remember, uh, God, I haven't talked about this for years. Um, as an eighteen-year-old, hearing my mum and dad discussing whether I might be gay, mm. it was a really like I don't, wow. And I was at the point where I was hadn't obviously hadn't told them, but was ready to. Yeah. And so later that dad sort of took my dad to, to one side and said, yeah, yeah, it's true, I am gay. Um, and he was like, well, fine, you know. Um, and then I was like, will you tell mum, kind of thing. And then she, she was awful about it, never accepted it. Um, very, you know, just, well, very sadly, very homophobic. I kind of remember her when I was a bit young, perhaps more like 16, 17, once saying something, she said something like, um, you know, I'm to- totally in favour of gay rights, but if you or Paula came home and said that you were, then I, I couldn't cope with that, which turned out to be absolutely true <laughs> and probably did delay me coming out to them. And did you get a sense of why she couldn't cope with it? I mean, was this part of her own upbringing, that working-class background? And I do wonder, I mean, my experience is, I think, I mean, it's sometimes said that there's a class element to it. My, my experience hasn't really been that. Right. I, you know, you, I've, I've, I've encountered as much acceptance in working class communities as, yeah. as middle class communities and you know, similar levels of hostilities. But, but is, it is often said, and of course it's often said also that a lot of people have the opposite experience to mine in that mums are often better than dads. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think, I don't know, I think my dad, they had, they had different personalities. Mm. You know, he was a more, it's so much easier to talk about them both because sadly neither of them yeah, was around, but yeah. um, he was a more, I don't know, laid back kind of person. He was much less judgmental, he was just generally more accepting. She was a lot more um, strident. And, you know, she had a lot to be 
disappointed about in her life or angry about it. You know, she was a very bright right. person who ended up, um, you know, she'd have gone to university now, but the attitudes and opportunities in those days, even for a girl who'd gone as she did to the grammar school, mm. meant that she ended up quitting, you know, being out of education from, from the age of 15. I think she never, she never got over that. And frankly, she, you know, she always... She, the, the pressure to go to university for, for me and my sister was much greater from her who hadn't been than yeah. from my dad who had. Yeah. Which I suppose, you know, there's a sense to that. Um, but there was also a slight resentment alongside the... Yeah. Encouragement. And did you enjoy Oxford? Yeah, I did, I did enjoy Oxford, and I, um, you know, I went there from a comprehensive school. The you did, your experience wasn't the same as your father's. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. No, absolutely. And you know, I was. I made some great friendships. Um, you know, I got very heavily involved in Labour, the Labour Club, in the student union, not the, not the union debating society, and in what was you know the gay sort, the lesbian and gay society, as it was called in those days, LGBT. Um, society and so it was personally a really important time for my own kind of um, I know just my freedom to be myself mm. um, I sometimes think academically I didn't make as much use of it as I should have done uh, I often think I, I peaked academically at A levels in getting into Oxford and when I was there I you know I did my studies and got my degree but I I you know I enjoyed what I the social life but also um, getting involved in politics and student unionism. And, and did, the, did the idea of having a career in politics start to evolve at that point? When did you give up on the idea of being a lawyer? Really good question. I, I, I think when I, went, when I went there, I probably, when I went to Oxford, I probably was still thinking at the end of the three years it's a law conversion. Mm. And I got more engaged in politics, um, as well as studying it, engaged in it in that time. And I think I sort of gradually gave up on the idea of becoming a lawyer. I don't think, but I, if I'm honest, I can't really remember, I don't think I made some instant leap from, no, no, I'm not going to be a lawyer because I'm going to be a politician. Mm. Uh, and of course, I then went into student politics and a lot of student politicians are often accused of being careerists who are looking to their future, um, future possibilities as a member of parliament. I, I don't think that was something I was expecting, but perhaps by then it was starting to be something that I considered a possibility. So because you obviously became president of the National Union yes. of Students. That was at um, which, which point? So you do your degree. Did my degree and then went on to the NUS executive. So usually, usually if you become the president, you've done two years, three years in some sort of prior yeah. executive or sabbatical role. So I had two years on the executive, in the second of which I was the vice president uh, responsible for education policy and campaigning. And this is when your education was suffering, you weren't making enough... Oh, yeah, no, this yeah. was after graduating. Was after this was after graduating. Right, okay. Yes, actually, my, my experience at Oxford, I stood for the Student Union Presidency um, at Oxford in, in 87, I lost. So right. this was my first, <clears throat> my that, first experience of defeat. I mean, it's possible that had I won... Well, there's a number of possibilities. Had I won, I might have ended up never completing my degree because yeah. <laughs> I was standing to do it at the end of my second year. So if I'd won, it would have been a year out and then back to study. And yeah. might there have been a risk that I'd have never gone back to study? Probably I would have completed my degree. I might have missed the national cycle and therefore not been president nationally. So it just would have been different. Right, OK. And th- so that <coughs> the desire to be active in the National Union of Students... You were saying it wasn't necessarily driven by a political career, but what was it driven by? 
think at the time I was struggling to work out what I'd do next <laughs> and the opportunity came up. Um, I think I'd got, I remember very precisely the period. So it was the, I was elected onto the executive in um, at the, the NUS conference in spring of 88. So it would have been kind of Christmas through to then that I was kind of preparing to run. And I was very involved. So it was then Section 28 was going through Parliament. Yeah. So I was quite involved. Section in 28, just to explain for people listening, that it was the, uh, the clause which prohibited schools from, in quotes, promoting... Um, Homosexuality. homosexuality. Yeah. So the initial wording was promotion, and then it got amended to intentional promotion of, of homosexuality. And it was a hugely controversial and galvanising um, issue. And it, was, it, it came up, I think, in um, not long, some November, December from memory, in 87. And I was in my final year as a student. And I remember, actually, I was at home in Oxford, and Joan Ruddock, who at the time was a Labour MP in London, rang me, because I think she was maybe on the committee of the bill that was considering um, this, and said, look, this is happening, we need, there needs to be a mobilisation. And there was this quite rapid mobilisation, um, and I was very involved in the group in Oxford, right. which was... Um, mobilising against um, Section 28. So there was that. There, was some, there were great international causes like anti-apartheid that I had some involvement in. And so I think I saw going on the NUS executive partly as being about some of the causes and issues mm-hmm. that I was involved with um, as a student. I don't think when I went on to the executive in 88, I even thought, oh, I might become the president in two years' time. Mm-hmm. You know, later that became... Um, something I considered. What, what, what was that like when you? I mean, just the process of campaigning to be president and then being El Presidente subsequently. How? how so I, I this week I had lunch with um, the person I beat <laughs> for that, <laughs> okay. uh, Richard Hawkes, who was the other main candidate, right. um, uh, and he's now a, a, a very senior and respected charity um, charity leader. And he's giving me advice on what I do next. It's, it's nice. But we were the two main candidates in that election in 1990 for the NUS um, presidency. And I mean, right, what I said to him was, uh, you know, didn't we take ourselves seriously? And I, I, I kind of look back at that period and think, you know, God, um, I took myself too seriously. The whole thing was a bit, yeah. you know, bit, bit kind of exaggerated in terms of its own sense of importance. But... You know, the politics within NUS then were, you know, lab- the Labour students were the leading group, had held the presidency for some time and carried on doing so. So the, in a sense, the, the, the big fight was getting the Labour students' nomination mm. and, then, and then there was the vote um, for the presidency. And the latter part involved going around the country and doing hustings and you could right. turn up at, at Bradford and you'd turn up in Exeter and you know, all around the country uh, and hust often in front of quite a small number of people. Um, but the vote was done then at the, the NUS conference, which in those days was always in Blackpool. Oh, yeah. uh, but I think now they, they move around the country, but it used to be a twice-yearly visit to Blackpool for the National Union Students and, Conference. And you were president for a year? Two years. Two years. Um, and how was, how was that? What do, you, what do you do as president? It is an amazing opportunity at a very young age. You know, I was 23, yeah. and um, it was 1990 when I uh, became the president. So actually the conference... Um, at which I became the president was the week of the big poll tax demonstration in Trafalgar Square it was the the last months of of Margaret Thatcher's government Thatcherism Um, it was a period leading into a general uh, election 
And the role, I mean, it does give you some amazing experience at a young age. So media experience, certainly you know, television and radio experience, public speaking, but also some kind of uh, business experience. So at that time, NUS um, had a stake in Ensley Insurance, yeah. and the president and treasurer of the of NUS would go on the board of Ensley Insurance. Right. So, you know, I'd be kind of most of the week <laughs> in our headquarters wow. in Holloway Road in North London or, you know, travelling around the country speaking to students. And then I'd go off to a swanky hotel where the board of um, Hensley Insurance um, would be meeting. And you know, that, to get that, that, um, that experience at a young age is, is, yeah. is amazing. Um, and then you work with a professional staff team who are the permanent, you know, if you like, the civil service um, of of the organisation, and you know, it's, it, in many ways, it's them that keeps the organisation together, mm. because the student elected representatives, a lot of it was just very, very political, mm. very factional, uh, and that you know that wasn't that side of it wasn't wasn't great, and you know I think I I look back and. I mean, I'm a, as you know, I'm a pluralist. Like, I've always been a pluralist, but student politics are, you know, they tend to be very, very kind of polarised and, and, and visceral and tribal. And, um, yeah, I think, like a lot of things from that period of my life, I sort of look back and think how I do them differently yeah. now. <laughs> I mean, I'm intrigued how we get from there to 97, for example. Yeah. Um, because it sounds like an off-putting experience apart from anything else. Um, so where, do, mm. where, where did you go from... Sort of, mm. So the NUS presidency mm. finished in 1992. At that point, you think, right, now I'm going to do what? So that was the year my mum died. So oh, I'm taking it back to my mum. But it is kind of relevant to how that year was. So I, you know, my term finished. We had, well, actually, you had the general election. Was it, uh, did she die suddenly? Was this a, she uh, died uh, suddenly, so yeah. She, big she, physical, she, emotional shock. It was huge, yeah. She was, fifth, she was the age I am now, actually, yeah. She wow. was 53. And she died in, during an epileptic seizure. Oh. Which is um, uh, it's a it's 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 a not uncommon cause of death right. uh, for people who have epilepsy, but tends I think I'm right in saying tends to be people at a younger age. Yeah. Um, so she um, yeah it was a huge huge shock. So I'd had we'd had the, the you know the general election defeat. I was handing over the presidency of NUS in April, and then my mum died in May, mm. and you know that was. You know, it took a long time really for that to sink in. Mm-hmm. So it was a period. I'd sort of had this life where I'd gone from one thing to another, um, you know, from school to university to NUS, and now I was in this period of uncertainty. And my mum had died. Um, so actually, what did I do? I stood for the local council. Um, so I was living. <laughs> what, what, you know, else what else would you do? Would you yeah. do? Exactly. <laughs> so I, I, I was living in um, Jeremy Corbyn's constituency in <laughs> North Islington. <laughs> And um, I was finishing at NUS. I hadn't yet got a job. Um, and uh, three vacancies arose for Labour councillors um, in the borough by election. So I put my name forward and got selected for one of the, the by-elections. And this was in... The, the elections were in July 92. So the political mood after the 92 election was not great. Right. The Labour council was not much loved. <laughs> you know, it had been a, a Labour council for, for a long time. Um, and I scraped in in a ward that was traditionally safe Labour. One of the other wards went Conservative, and there hadn't been a Conservative councillor in Islington for a long time, and the other was, was, was more strongly Labour. And so I then became part of this Islington Labour um, group, and I was a councillor. 
but I still didn't have a job. So um, I became parliamentary officer at Amnesty International. And it was a cover for someone who was seconded to to another role in in Amnesty. So it was a 10-month job, but was just an amazing experience. Mm. And, you know, I'd have have very, very happily stayed there, but unfortunately she came back (laughs) and I had to go. But, uh, you know, I I loved that time at Amnesty and I, you know, I remain a big, big fan of the work that Amnesty International does Mm. from, from that time. Amnesty had been the first... In the political, in the broadest sense, organisation I've been involved with because we had an amnesty group at school. So, so I was actually involved in that even before uh-huh. joining the Labour Party. So that that path then from there to w- w- did the and I keep going back to this, but the, the idea of then standing for Westminster mm. must have started to sort of form in your mind at that point. Strangely, it actually subsided because I became extremely focused on the council. Right. Okay. And. Um, there was and, a, there was a how, kind of, you know, how was that experience dealing with the sorts of stuff that, you know, unless you've been a councillor, I don't think you really understand what councillors yeah. do, the sorts of issues they deal with at a, at a local level. Mm. But that must have been in a borough like Islington, which has is, got extremes of mm. you know, wealth and poverty. It must have been very interesting. So my ward was mostly poor. Right. Uh, so it was a, it doesn't the wards have all changed, but it's basically the area, if you know that area, it's the area between Seven Sisters Road going up towards Archway mm. on the Finsbury Park side of Holloway Road. It's going to mean nothing to most people listening to this, but, <laughs> but it's predominantly, um, predominant, a lot of social housing, a lot of private rented housing, um, ethnically mixed. Yeah. Uh, so there's some re- real issues there. And the big thing for me, particularly at the beginning, was I just, I, I kind of threw myself into that and into the ward work. Mm. And I liked it and I re- enjoyed it. I, I remember someone I knew from NUS saying she was quite surprised at how I really kind of threw myself into that and, 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 and found that role uh, fulfilling. Why? I mean, what sort of stuff were you dealing with? So people needing housing repairs. Um, you know, I remember doing my advice surgeries and going with people and looking at their... Um, housing problems with them and then getting onto the officers and trying to get it sorted out. Yeah. People wanting housing. A lot of it was housing, housing transfers. Um, there were a couple... There were, I didn't have any really big estates, but there were um, three sort of um, modest-sized estates and there were a lot of issues on the estates about the kind of the communal areas and broken intercom doors and those sorts of things. I just got very involved with the tenants and residents associations on the estates mm-hmm. and seeking to, to, to represent them um, as best as best I could. And it wasn't I think I probably went on the council age twenty five not really knowing what to expect mm-hmm. um, and found myself in many ways enjoying that more local side of it the most mm. although later I then got very drawn into the town hall Labour group politics but we might come to that yes we will well yeah, let's, <laughs> let's jump to that I mean I, I'm interested in the in in the, the, the enthusiasm with which you mm. described that local mm. work because mm. it's I remember talking to um, a former Labour MP called Tony Wright mm. many years ago now mm. who was saying the thing about constituency work is it's it's the one thing where you, you can have a real influence as an individual. Mm. In Parliament or on the Council, mm. you're one of many. Yeah. But if you find somebody some housing, mm. you know, this is a tangible thing and there's a, you, there's a problem and there's a solution mm. and you get that sense of completion yeah. at the end of it. And there's, there's not a lot in other parts of your political 
life where you get that sense of mm. I've done this, I've done mm. something tangible and good, and there is a completion mm. to it. I think it's so true. And I, you know, I remember in, um, you know, I'm sure we'll come to 97, but in that 97 to 01 period when you know, Labour had a big majority mm. and a lot of the MPs like me who'd come in kind of unexpectedly, we did have a big constituency focus. Mm. And I do remember there was some criticism of that and people saying, you know, you're acting like you're your social workers rather than, you know, you're there to legislate, you're there to hold the government uh, to account. But I always felt both as a councillor and as an MP that that difference you can make, as you say, as an individual or not necessarily as an individual, but constructing a team for for local change. So working with the councillors, working with the community, that was, for me, incredibly fulfilling, both both when it comes to helping people individually, which is often how it, how it was, but also sometimes in a more collective sense of coming together to try to solve a local problem. You know, yeah. if there's a need for... You know, I remember in, in, in Southgate when I was first elected, there was a desperate need for a new secondary school. So there was a big campaign around that and where it should be located. And I was able to act as a, as a conduit between the people campaigning for the school, the people who didn't want the school to be on the proposed location, yeah. the council and the government to get that new school bill. And you were, I mean, you were saying, sort of got diversity, but were you mm. saying your, your desire to become a, a Westminster politician sort of subsided that yeah. way because you were throwing yourself down mm. so deeply into the council. So how did you get to... to Standing in Enfield. So, um, I've got a subsidiary question to that because I, I know that you, you, you ended up being General Secretary of the Fabian Society, yeah. which you took up in 96. And I remember hearing a rumour at the time that you, <laughs> the only reason you got the job was because you persuaded the interview panel, look, I am standing for election yep. next year, but there's absolutely yep. no way yep. I'm going to get elected to this yep. seat. Spot on. <laughs> so I'll start with that and then go backwards. Um, the Fabian Society had a rule, I, I imagine they've still got it, um, that, that the General Secretary couldn't seek any public office, I think, in the first two years. Right. And I was a councillor, um, and I said to them, look, I'm a councillor, um, I'd prefer not to have to create a council by-election, um, but I'm, I'll just be a backbencher, I, won't, you know, I, was, I was deputy leader of the council by that point. Um, but also, I've just been chosen in Enfield Southgate. It's one of the safest Conservative seats. There's no way I'm going to win it. I really don't want to let them down by resigning. And the Fabian Society panel let me do that. Now, the big unknown for me is, had they said, sorry, we've got a rule on this, yeah. I might well have jacked in Southgate. Right. And then I could have been sat there, I've made the second on my sofa watching someone else <laughs> defeating Michael Wadilla. Um, but the, the, the way the story connects is... I became more and more into the council. In 94, I became the chief whip um, of, of, the, of the council and quite quickly had the ambition to be the leader of the council. And, you know, when I reflect on that time, I wince at myself for that because I think I was a bit arrogant. Right. You know, I, was in, I, I kind of thought I could do it better. I had a team. Was it the frustration of the current leaders of the council? I mean, that's how it expressed itself at the time. But I think, I think I was wrong, and what I should have done was was make it work with the then leaders rather than just trying to displace them. So we had this. Margaret Hodge had been the leader for a long time and had gone in '92, and there'd been this sort of these two um, two councillors that were leaders, Derek Sawyer and Alan Clinton, and they alternated. And we'd have these, every year the AGM would be a battle over who the leader would be. Right. And Alan became the leader in 94 with my support and I was his chief whip. And then it kind of, I should have made it work and instead I decided two years later to challenge him. 
and I lost. Right. Uh, I lost by one vote. And it was a weird... So in, in, <laughs> I decided what I wanted to do was to be leader of the council. I thought I could be, that I could do the job well, that there was an opportunity to improve the council and modernise it, and I could do that. Mm-hmm. And that was my focus. And I, you know, I worked towards that end and I lost by one vote. And I look back and I think, actually, what we should have done is a completely different approach and built bridges with the lead and made it. Well, anyway, however, to answer the original question, that was my focus until the point at which I lost. Right. However, what I did earlier that year was get selected for Southgate. And so by then, I was, I was really thinking I wanted to be leader of the council but I was keeping open mm. a kind of national parliamentary option. Mm. And, and I thought standing for Enfield Southgate, which was where I was from, I didn't live there anymore, which would be fun. It would be high profile because it was against Michael Portillo. I wouldn't win, but it might mean if 10 years later I wanted to stand somewhere else, mm. I could say, oh, I ran. I, I remember, and this is seriously true, my ambition when it was clear Labour was going to do very well nationally, my ambition was to get his majority below 10,000. That was genuinely, <laughs> and, and that seemed... Because it had never been... Apart from in the by-election when he was first elected, it was quite close. Yeah. But apart against the SDP Liberal Alliance, not right. Labour. But uh, Labour had never come anywhere near to the Conservatives in that Because con- Portillo was a very high-profile politician. Was he... Min- uh, he was Defence Secretary. Defense, yeah. He was Defence Secretary. Um, and, I mean, at what point... Did it become evident that you, you might do better than simply reducing his majority? Four days before the general election. <laughs> Four days. Before, I, I remember I was at home in Islington and a friend of mine was working on one of the Sunday political shows and rang and he said, the Observer have done this massive set of polls in key constituencies and it shows that Portillo's lead over Labour is 4%. So this opinion poll in the Observer on the final Sunday of the 97 campaign was Conservative 45, Labour 41 in Enfield Southgate, Liberal Democrats, I think, 11. That, by com- complete coincidence, that night, the Sunday night, was the only hustings that Michael Portillo would, would do. So there was one hustings in the constituency that was the night of this poll. So it was very well attended in uh, the church, church, church hustings. And I used it unashamedly to say, <laughs> look at this poll. If you're thinking of voting Liberal Democrat, give your vote to me. We then produced a leaf, an A5 leaflet, which we, we printed off in a, just a local print shop. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have our own facilities that reproduced the poll as a bar graph, gave the figures and said, if you want to defeat Michael Portillo on Thursday, only a Labour vote will count. And we initially produced enough leaflets for one ward because we thought realistically we had three yeah. days. And then because of that poll... People were coming from all over to help. They were like, where's your HQ? Wow. So we had to, like, my um, the campaign organiser and CLP secretary had a flat, so we had to say that was the HQ. And you had, I mean, I remember David Miliband turning up, I think, the day before the election, and we sent him off to Leaflet with this bar graph leaflet. And he came back and said, there's no way you're going to win the size of those houses. <laughs> <laughs> so really, before that Sunday... I did not remotely consider the possibility I would win. I remember there was a local member who all the time said, you're going to win, and we were so dismissive of her, saying, oh, you know... What but you hadn't picked up stuff on the doorstep, so something... Well, we weren't really... I mean, we weren't doing that much on the doorstep, because <laughs> you know, the 97 strategy was so um, focused on marginal seats. Yeah, yeah. So the borough of Enfield had three Conservative MPs. 
You had Edmonton, which was historically Labour, but it had been Tory from 83 uh, right through to 97, and that was the key seat. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our activists were campaigning in Edmonton. Enfield North was a standalone seat, so there was no twinning, but quite a few would go and help there. We had quite a small team until those final four days. We were mostly leafleting and doing street stalls. So on election day, I kid you not, on election day, we didn't have the data to knock up. The, the, the traditional process of go out and get your voters out. So there was, there was one ward that was much more Labour than the rest. So we just knocked on every door. Wow. We just went and knocked on every door on the basis that you know, if there was any prospect of even a close result, we needed 70, 80% in that ward. It was yeah. worth knocking up the odd you know, Conservative voters. And so, I mean, the, the, the night... Uh, I remember I remember watching it myself. It, it came through in the early hours of the morning. Three o'clock, yeah. yeah. Um, and how was... <laughs> Well, I mean, that's, I mean that's, that, that image has been played, it was played and played and played at the time. But how was it then suddenly finding yourself as an elect, the elected member of Parliament for Enfield Southgate? It was just utterly overwhelming. And I was on, you know, I was, I was on cloud nine for weeks, if not months. And, you know, the immediate, the immediate reality of the, the, the kind of the, the glare of publicity um, happened and obviously the focus was on him not me you know it was big for me but it was it was people don't say where you up for Stephen Twig it was where you up for Portilla <laughs> it was about this guy who people thought would probably be the next leader of the party no longer having having a seat but also it was about what it symbolized for the scale of this this victory and I remember we went off um, to the Royal Festival Hall where the Labour Party had been having its uh, event and I think it was about probably five, half five, six in the morning. By the time we got there, I think all the booze had run out. And, you know, we were the soberest people, people there, and um, then just doing the media rounds and uh, and then going back and doing media in the constituency. And it was and then suddenly being struck with the reality of right. That was amazing. Now I've actually got to set up an office so and what, what find were, staff. Yeah, what were those first few weeks like of, of being in Parliament? Because there was such an influx of unexpected mm. Labour politicians mm. coming in, so many of them. Mm. How would the first... I mean, what struck you about... I mean, it was, it was just... It was amazing. It was... In terms of life, it was utterly chaotic. I mean, it really was... You know, I, I remember sort of... In the, you know, these are the days, really, when you didn't have social media, you didn't really have even much use of email mm -hmm. so people who wanted to get hold of me as their new MP were phoning up or they were writing letters so I'd go to the post office each day and get this massive bundle of letters but I had, didn't have an office didn't have any staff I mean actually I, I had the Fabian Society down the road so I could go and sort of at least look <laughs> at my letters in the Fabian Society so top priority was staff was, was, was recruiting staff and, and, and finding an office in Westminster to get going. But it was the sense, you know, of camaraderie was amazing and uh, there were friends that had been elected and then new friends to be made. And, you know, it's very hard, I think, for perhaps for a younger generation that weren't around then to quite describe and explain mm. the, the excitement of that, that period, yes. which came for us after 18 years of... The Conservatives yeah, in government. The end of one era and the mm. start of a, what felt like a very yeah. new, younger, modern yeah. era. Um, and how was... I mean, you were then the MP for, for Southgate and for two parliamentary terms for 2005. How, and you, Education Minister and mm. uh, Permanent Undersecretary for Leader of the House, is that? Yeah, that yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, yeah. How, was, how was that experience? How was... Um, I mean, in terms of your life as a, as a mm. member of parliament and a minister, was it 
what you had expected? I didn't know what to expect. I had no idea. I'd worked in, I worked for Margaret Hodge. So Margaret was elected, I missed that bit out of the story. So Margaret was elected in Barking in a by-election in 94 after Joe Richardson, who was the long-standing MP there, had died. And I, she recruited me as her researcher. So I worked there uh, for Margaret for two years. So I did know, I had worked in Parliament, but... I had no sense of what it would be like being in there, not just being an MP, but being a government backbencher mm. in a government with a big majority, because all my learning had been Labour in, in opposition. Mm. And I'd say, you know, I think back to that period, I was very, very constituency focused and then issues uh, focused. So I, you know, for example, I, I picked up a number of issues that were from um, constituents. So um, I had this... Um, tragic case of a, of a girl who was killed by a car. Uh, she was called Livia Galley Atkinson and her parents are campaigners now for road safety and I'm still involved with an award that they do for the Metropolitan Police annually um, in, in her memory, the Livia Award. Um, and then I had an, another case that resonated with me very personally about epilepsy. So a mum who came right. to see me whose daughter had died in much the same way my mum had died. Mm. And so I set up uh, or re-established an all-party group on epilepsy. So I did a lot of kind of causes yeah. and constituency work. Yeah, I mean, as, as I get older, I'm more self-critical. I, wasn't, I can't pretend in that parliament I was a great parliamentarian in any classic sense of going in for everything and taking mm. part in lots of debates and, que- and questioning things and holding the government to account. I was much more, if I'm honest, a loyal government backbencher. Mm. I had issues that I worked on and campaigned on, and then I was very focused on trying to be good as a local constituency MP. Did you find it rewarding, the experience of I, both the constituency and parliament or bits of it? I adored the constituency work. I mean, I loved it. Um, and... You know, they'd had this had been a safe Conservative seat for decades. Mm. They'd had a very prominent member of Parliament who was a cabinet minister, and who, you know, to be fair, therefore couldn't possibly have had the kind of time available to him that I had as a as a newly elected backbencher. And I just threw myself into working with community organisations, working on local issues, getting to know all the schools, and, and I loved it. I, you know, it, it was it was extremely rewarding. Um, Parliament, you know, it was. It was rewarding being part of that big majority and all the things we were, good things that, that the government was doing, mm. uh, you know, the usual litany of things that that Labour government was agreeing between 97 and 01. Um, I probably, as, as I said, I probably wish I'd thrown myself a bit more into scrutiny and challenge of, of, of that government, but I was part of that generation who felt very loyal to what was going but, on. I mean, did you have specific ambitions within government? Because obviously, mm. having defeated Portillo, mm. there was always a concern about how long you were going to hold the seat for. But did you, I mean, could you see a political career in, it's in front great, of it's a, it's a great question because the, 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 the obvious thing to think was the 97 would be a fluke. Mm. And even if Labour got a second term with a clear majority, there was a bunch of seats the Tories would win back very straightforwardly. And I always thought that was a real possibility. And I think in that 9701 Parliament, I was, I was relaxed about whether I got jobs in government or not. I, you know, when reshuffles happened, I wasn't, I wasn't thinking, well, I wonder if I'll get, you know, I wonder if I'll be in the Whip's office mm. or, you know, will I be made a minister? Um, my, my focus was trying to get re-elected, but was also thinking, even if I don't, this will have been an amazing four or five years and mm. then who knows what I'll do next. 
Um, I wasn't at all driven at that time by a desire to be a minister, yeah. although obviously that opportunity did then come in 20, 2001 when I was re-elected. Did you enjoy being a, a minister? I mean, specifically in education. I loved being an education minister. You know, I, I would say, looking back at seven, what, 17 and a half years as an MP, there are three things I loved. I really did love the constituency work, schools minister and chair of the International Development Committee. They are the three things I feel proudest of, that I enjoyed the most, I think I learned a lot from. I couldn't bear being a shadow front bencher. <laughs> that was not... I whether we'll come to that. But, um, no, I, I, you know, I had that year with, with you and Meg and Robin Cook, and yes. uh, it was you know, an extraordinary year when Robin became leader of the House, and um, it was clear that he was going to have this big focus on modernising the House of Commons and trying to reform the House of Lords. And, you know, I, I in that, what, not even a year... I learned a lot about Parliament and how it worked. I'm, I learned far more about Parliament yeah. being Deputy Leader of the House than I'd learned in the previous four years as a, as a backbench MP. Yeah, I mean, that was an interesting... Yeah, an interesting experience working for Robin, partly because, I mean, just to explain the, the context, this was um, Robin Cook having been removed as Foreign Secretary in 2001, suddenly becoming Leader of the House of Commons, and me and now Professor Meg Russell mm-hmm. ended up as Special Advisors to Robin, and I came in having been thinking and writing about constitutional mm. parliamentary democratic reform for several years in the sort of quasi think tank world and then coming into government and finding how different it was the theory from the practice yep. and how we spent most of that sort of two years up until the point Robin resigned over the Iraq war um, largely arguing with Downing Street and the Whip's mm. office and mm. the, the opposition was not on the opposition front benches it was actually yep. within the government that yep. we spent most of that time yep. arguing yeah no, I, uh, that, that was absolutely um, how it was. You know, I think that that legacy that Robin has for modernisation of the House of Commons is is mm. something to be very proud of. I mean, sadly, on the Lords there was yeah. there was no, just no 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 consensus was there and, and, and no commitment to it from from Tony Blair. Yeah. So but, but, we tried. Bit, but we tried. But we tried. <laughs> yeah, but we tried. Yeah, yeah. Um, skipping forward a bit, I mean, the, the, one of the things which sort of I alluded to is that the 2005 obviously. Um, you lost that election mm. uh, in Enfield Southgate, but came back in 2010. One of the, the and sort of where we started really, um, did you know what you were going to fall back on? You know, assuming that you, you were in a, a seat which was going to be marginal, if, if and when that happened, what would you, what would you do next? I had, I had nothing planned. I mean, one of the things I sometimes say about Enfield Southgate is I stood there three times and each time the result was a surprise. <laughs> no, <laughs> so 2005, I, were you expecting to... I thought win? I'd scrape back in. You right. know, I, I could see we'd had a really good result in 01 and, you know, the benefit of hindsight, um, that flattered. Mm. Uh, so we got... The majority went up to five, over 5,000. It felt like I had a buffer. You know, we could see from the campaigning um, that... Labour was losing support over Iraq in particular and some other issues. Um, that was Some of that was going to the Conservatives, but mostly that was going Lib Dem Green or just people weren't going to vote. And my feeling was it's going to be tight, but I'll scrape back in. So it did come as a, uh, it did come as a big shock. Perhaps it shouldn't have done, but and it, was, you know, it was one of the biggest anti-Labour swings. <laughs> not something to shout about, but one of the biggest anti-Labour swings in that election, having been one of the biggest pro-Labour swings in both 97 and 01. And what do you do at, the, at that point? What, do you, what sort of soul-searching do you do? I mean, because it's at one level, 
you know, to, knowing lots of politicians and going through this experience, there is there is often a public sense that well, if you're an MP, then you can go off and do all sorts of things. Mm. But actually, lots of MPs struggle with mm. life after Parliament mm. because there aren't actually that many transferable skills mm. which allow you to then hop to another mm. career very easily. But also, there is this sense of massive loss mm. um, and a sense of what could I have done differently mm. to to mm. change that result. Yeah, I mean, I thought a lot about what I could have done differently to change the result. In the end, although it wasn't a ma- the, the margin was about eight, seventeen, eighteen hundred, mm. and that kind of was big enough to think actually, probably organisation couldn't have couldn't yeah. have changed that. Um, you know, if I'd voted against the Iraq War, then who knows? But I, I'm I'm not sure that the sense of anger that there was about Iraq yeah. was aimed at Labour nationally. So I'm not sure the particular position the MP had taken on it was as important as people wanting to send a message to Tony Blair and the government about yeah. it. Uh, that might have perhaps made a bit of a difference. And I often think, you know, if I hadn't been a minister, you know, in, in the four years where I was a minister, I wasn't able to put the amount of time into constituency work that I had in the previous four years, I still think I did a lot, but you, by definition couldn't do as much. Um, that might have had an effect, but probably not. Um, and I was very lucky, you know, I, I, found, um, I found paid roles quite quickly um, after defeat. But it felt, it felt very, even though I knew rationally it was a political shift mm. because of certain issues... And to be fair the, to them, the Conservatives were, were very well organised and ran an effective campaign locally. Um, it felt personal. Yeah. You, know, I, I, yeah. you know, I was from there. I, I, we ran me always as this local, local yeah. boy. Um, so although I could see that it, most people were voting for because they were angry about Iraq or other, other issues, there was a sense of personal loss and... Um, and that was quite hard to get over, yeah, actually. Yeah, I think you very, very rarely get that sense of the, 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 the personal aspects mm. to politics in, mm. in the way that it's covered. And it's hard to even, you know, even talking about it. You know, mm. a, most people like me very particularly sympathetic to a politician no. lamenting their defeat that's happened because but it, of a but it, but if you big know, controversial decision. No, quite. And, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's just part of, part of politics. You know, mm. you get elected, you get uh, rejected. But it's... If you know people who have stood for election, who've been MPs and lost, there is a process of grieving for the mm. fact that, it, mm. you know, that, because there is a very, very strong personality, mm. aside from the fact that um, you have to think, well, what do I do now? Yeah. No, I, one of the things I said privately to people at the time, I think that saying it to you is the most public I've ever said it, but it's a, it's a, it's a bit like dying and then also being the bereaved relative. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you both go through the, the awful experience yourself, but then you're also um, uh, experiencing the consequences you, how, of it. How long did it take you to think, right, I want to do this again and stand for election? Remarkably quickly. So Liverpool came later, right. but I, I basically had to decide... The two things I had to decide about that, um, well, I didn't have to, but I did decide about that, were did I want to stand again and did I want to stand again in Southgate? Mm. And there was a a, a bit of me that thought, you know, uh, this is where I'm from, this is where I'm living, I've represented here for eight years, maybe just stick at it and stand again and try and win it back. I very quickly thought, if anything, the chances are the swing next time will be nationally away again just because Labour had just won a third term. So then it was, do I want to say, wow, eight years in Parliament, four of them in government, let's do something completely different with my life. And I did decide quite quickly, no, I'm I'm, kind of missing it, I enjoyed it, I want to go back. 
Um, and I didn't really do it other than making that decision mentally. I didn't do anything because you know, the opportunities don't come till later in mm. a parliament. And it wasn't till the autumn of 06 that I started to pick up the possibility that there'd be an open selection in, in West Derby in Liverpool. Right. And I mean, skipping forward a, a bit, um, you mentioned that uh, one of your proudest moments or most enjoyable was being the, the chair of the International Development mm. Committee, which happened mm. in 2015. 15, yes. 15. Um, I, I, I mean, going back in 2010, obviously Labour's now in mm. opposition, must be a very different feel to it. Um, how did that, how did you come to be chair of the mm. International Development Committee? So, 10 to 15, I had, on the one hand, I was, you know, back as a member of parliament, creating. Um, my my work locally in the constituency was incredibly exciting and, and positive. And you know, I had a wonderful team of people. Um, we were you know, Liverpool City Council had been Liberal Democrat controlled for twelve years, and then come back to Labour. There was in that time, even even with the impacts of government policy on communities, there was a sense of dynamism, and it was actually quite that side of it was exciting. I went back into the House of Commons, and just it was so hard. You know, I am, and I'm even more like this now, but even, even then, I, I struggle with the tribalism. I struggle, I str- you know, I can be partisan if I'm passionate about an issue and think the government's getting it wrong. And there were plenty of those issues where I thought that. But everything was so tribal and partisan. I found that really hard. And then I went on the front bench. Now, you know, I had a year shadowing in the Foreign Office team on Middle East and Africa. So that, that, that was great. And that was around the time of the Arab Spring. And was, I learned a lot, actually, in that period, particularly about Sub-Saharan Africa. But then I had two years as Shadow Education Secretary. And I was so pleased to be back in education. But I didn't... I, I just wasn't very good at the job, if I'm honest. You know, what, what did the Labour Party want? They wanted someone who was going to bash Michael Gove over the head. And I was someone who was prepared to do that on some things, but could see the nuance on others. I remember I did an interview with Peter Wilby in The Guardian, um, in which he, he, it went something like this. He said, your argument sounds very nuanced. And I said, yes, Peter, I plead guilty to nuance. And I actually got an email from someone saying, we don't want you to be nuanced. We want you to fight go. As a, I can't remember if they remember or not, but, but, Typical of my experience in that period mm. was that I wanted to be nuanced and evidence-informed and people wanted me to fight Gove much harder than I did. So, and, you know, and I'm, self-criti- I'm partly self-critical on that. Having taken that job, I should have done it in a more adversarial way than I did. And I accept that. But I think in the areas where I was being nuanced, I would still say now... On the policy, I was right. I, it was good. Good policy, bad politics would be my view. Um, now looking back, it's a, it's a, that's a really interesting insight because it, I mean, I wonder. There may be academics doing research on this about whether if you if you go in as uh, if you're elected as a member of a governing party mm. um, and then become a minister, you you see you may see your job in a very different way than if you are elected as a member of the opposition, whose job it is simply to have a go at the, the governing party. Absolutely. I mean, there's that old Tony Blair thing of, in opposition, you work out what you're going to say that day, and in government, you work out what you're going to do yeah. that day. And, you know, I'd spent three years um, in education, which my big thing was the London Challenge. And the London Challenge was all about how you bring people together in London to improve the schools, particularly the secondary schools. It was brokering 
agreement with authorities, some of which were not controlled by Labour. There were Liberal Democrat or um, Liberal Democrat Conservative controlled authorities that were part of that. And so all of my experience in government had been about that relationship building and consensus building. And I was probably at the consensus end of that spectrum, so even within that context. So I came back to education as the shadow education secretary, and I think my mindset was to pick up where I left off. You know, know, what do I now do to see what we do to improve the schools? Which would have made sense if I was coming back to to be education secretary. But what I should have done more of, I should have got the balance, put the balance had the balance in a different place. So at what point did you start to think about, I mean obviously the leadership changed um, in the Labour Party, but at what point did you start to think about chairing a a select committee? And was it specifically the International Development Committee that you wanted to chair? So uh, I did my two years of shadow education, I was then moved to um, a more junior role which was shadowing political and constitutional reform, so stuff I'm very, um, very interested in. After the 15 election, I was still in that role because you kind of stay in, stay in your old role until the new leader's elected. And I remember it clearly. I was in the office in Liverpool and the allocation of select committee chairs came through. And Kevin, who was my senior caseworker in Liverpool, said, International Development Committee's Labour, because it had never had been. Yeah. Uh, uh, you should go for it. And I sort of looked at him and I thought about it. And I thought, wow, that would just be a complete change. I've been front bench you know, for the five years and then for the four in government. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really appealed straight away. And I didn't have a development background. You know, I'd always supported um, the 0.7% and DFID and all of that. And, and I'd, I'd been involved in particular issues of international policy. So I'd worked with a charity, the Aegis Trust, on genocide um, prevention. But I hadn't been a general development person. Mm. Um, so I consulted a few you know, friends, Alison McGovern, who'd been on the International Development Committee, who's a friend and she was she basically said go for it so literally that afternoon I decided I'm going to go for it so it wasn't something I'd been thinking about mm. prior to the election or in the days after the election but this must have been what a couple of weeks after the 2015 election so well before um, Jeremy's election as leader this was a decision I made that would have applied whoever had become um, the leader of the Labour and what, Party and what did you enjoy about it so much? Oh, I enjoyed the cross-party working. I enjoyed the, uh, the way that a lot of the work really is based on evidence. And this was the thing, as, when I shadow education, my big thing was, you know, we need more evidence in, in education policy, which I felt was an effective counter yeah. to some of the things Michael Gove was doing, but, but a lot of people didn't see it that way. Um, and then I mean, the issues, this was a time, obviously, of some huge humanitarian crises so you know our first inquiry uh, report uh, uh, when I was the chair was on the Syrian refugee crisis we then had Yemen and I you know, got very involved in the cause uh, of Yemen and still am um, we had the adoption of the sustainable development goals so it was mm-hmm. it was a, it was an ex- uh, I mean, exciting is the wrong word to use you know a challenging but uh, you know a really fascinating time to be in a committee <clears throat> role that was looking both at sustainable development but also response to these huge humanitarian crises. Mm. There was, I mean, I guess there was a sense of um, a lot of international focus on very important international issues which you were at the, at, at the centre of. And yeah, and, and hoping, you know, and it was a steep learning curve because mm. I, you know, I, didn't, I didn't have a detailed knowledge of the kind of architecture of the aid system, so I had to learn 
I had to learn a lot of that. Um, but then these, as you say, these huge issues uh, emerged and, you know, hopefully I was able to give effective voice to them. And what, I mean, what's your sense of the... It's perhaps too big a question to ask you about what you think about international aid at the moment, where it is. But but DFID in particular, perhaps, and where DFID is, how DFID is doing, where mm. it, where it's heading to next, mm. given the various rumours that it might be folded into the Foreign Office or not, uh, about aid being increasingly tied to to British trade post Brexit. Mm. I think there are reasons to be cautiously concerned. Um, it's unclear what the future holds for DFID. My sense is that probably DFID is going to continue as an independent and standalone department, which I, I would welcome. The issue then will be um, the 0.7% commitment, which is in the mm. Conservative Manifesto, but how that is implemented. And you know, Brexit kind of a, a, is, is, is a theme running through uh, all of all of this, um, I there is there are some grounds for hope. You know, I think the prime minister has shown real commitment on girls' education, and he's put the education of girls was prominent in the international section of the Conservative Party manifesto. And I've argued for some time that education needs to be given higher priority um, by DFID and by the government. So there are some hopeful signs, but I do worry that as the UK seeks new relationships, including new trade arrangements internationally, that could distort the priorities that the UK has in terms of where development spending goes. Mm -hmm. And in particular, I think over the previous period, there was an increased um, emphasis on some of the most fragile and conflict-affected states. Kind of by definition, Mm -hmm. these are not going to be the states that are priorities for trade Agreements and does money start to shift still to countries that, that, that need support, but ones that are less fragile, better developed? And, you know, I think it's going to be very important that there's effective accountability I mean, of that. If you, if you were still now chair of the International Development Committee, what would you be starting with in this, this new parliament? Assuming there is an International Development Committee. <laughs> yes, so I, I think right now, if I was... If I was um, you know, seeking re-election, I suppose, would be where I'd be right now. Um, I'd be wanting to make the case for the importance of the committee. And there, there, there's a serious point here, actually, which is if DFID is abolished, there yeah. should still be an International Development Committee yeah. because not all of the development money is spent by DFID. And I just think in practical terms, the Foreign Affairs Committee already has a huge agenda for them to take on all of the work that was previously done by the International Development Committee, I think would be challenging Mm. for them. And you already have examples of House of Commons committees on thematic issues, the Women Inequalities Committee, the Environmental Audit Committee. So I would argue, if DFID were to be abolished, that there should still be an International Development Committee. But let's assume um, that the International Development Committee survives. What I would be saying is the government are going to have a spending review. The spending review is a vehicle to address the effectiveness and efficiency of public spending in general. Mm. And part of that should be ensuring that um, the UK's aid and other development spending is as effective as possible. And the guiding light for me should be the contribution to the Sustainable Development Goals Mm. and poverty reduction. And that should then inform 
where programs are delivered. I'm not a purist that says everything has to be done by DFID. Um, and I think there are some very good programs that are run through departments other than the Department for International Development. But there is a risk that there is a sort of kind of um, reduction, a salami slicing of yeah. DFID's role with money moving elsewhere, some of which might be spent very effectively, but others, uh, others of it might not be spent as effectively as it might be. And now, sort of post, post-Parliament... Um, what are you looking forward to doing? I, I should explain, sort of, um, we, we have an interest in this in that you're coming to join GPG as an associate, which we're delighted by. But in terms of your, what you'd like to do after life in Parliament, what are you looking at? So first, I'm delighted to join um, GPG as uh, an associate and to have the opportunity to be part of the work that um, Global Partners uh, is doing. I'm taking my time to, to work out what to do next. You know, I, I have passions that we've talked about during this discussion in terms of development, in terms of equalities and human rights uh, and education. And, you know, I'm looking potentially at full-time roles in in those areas, but also potentially at doing a range of different things um, on equalities and development and education. I probably we need to speak again in maybe six (laughs) six or nine months' time to see how I'm getting on. Well, I look forward to that conversation, Stephen. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks, Greg. Well, that's it for this week. We'll be back in a fortnight and on the opposite side of the political divide, but still dealing with development and democracy when I speak to former DFID and Foreign Office Minister Alistair Burt, who in those roles commanded respect right across the political spectrum in Parliament and is also one of the best informed and best connected Foreign Office Ministers I've ever worked with. Looking forward to that, but until then, bye. Politics as Usual is brought to you by gpgovernance.net. Remember to subscribe, rate or review online. Thanks for listening.